let's dive in. Um, let's see. First session, day one on your notes. The obstacle of insincere motives. <clears throat> one of the things that really strikes me when I read Paul's writings is the way he can point to his conduct among them as demonstrating the purity of his motives in the message that he preached as evidence for the credibility of the gospel. And he almost says it, he just says it like, you know how I lived among you. You know that I went out of my way to show you that I really do believe this message so much with such deep conviction that when you watched me go through the things that I went through, I made an appeal to your conscience and you had to decide, wait a minute, if this person is willing to go through this for this message with seemingly nothing to gain in this age from it, that it pokes at their conscience. They have to make a decision. And a big part of that is Paul can say, you know the sincerity of my message because you know the sincerity of my life. And to the degree which it's possible to know somebody's motives based on a deduct, a, a, a conclusions based on, on observable evidence, right? God really is the one who looks in the heart. But what we have access to are certain things we can observe in somebody. And when we see it enough, we come to the conclusion they really are real in this thing. They're sincere. They're authentic. And not only are they sincere and authentic, they're sincere and authentic as demonstrated through great trials and difficulties. And that has power to really mess with somebody's mind. I mean, Paul could say, you know how I mess with your minds with my life. You know, it forces them to, 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 to ask some of the big questions forces them to lay in their beds at night and ask, why do I curse this person and he blesses me in return? He's not getting paid to do what he does. <laughs> He's going to prison for what he does. He blesses me. We slander him all the time, and yet he's merciful to us in return. Number one, how can any human being do that? <laughs> and number two, why would he do it? Um, and it provokes the conscience and has... And, and awakens the conscience to that point of, of, of somebody, who, an observer, to a place of crisis where they have to decide what to, to do with this gospel. Let's look here uh, at the first verse here, so that our ministry will not be discredited. 2 Corinthians 6, 3-4. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. The Holman Christian says, blamed the net so that no fault may be found. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. What strikes me about this verse is when you compare it to 1 Corinthians 9, what we looked at last night, where Paul says, I do everything I can to put no stumbling block before the gospel. Here he says, I don't want to put a stumbling block or a hindrance before somebody so that our ministry is not found at fault. And this stirs in me the question, wait a minute, what link is there between the ministry, the way it's carried out, 
the way it's executed before others, the how that goes with the what. What is it about the ministry having credibility that gives the gospel credibility? And this is one of those questions where I'm like, Lord, I almost know if I ask this question, I'm going to come away massively convicted, <laughs> right? To think that the credibility, that, that God would so tie the credibility of the most important message that's ever been entrusted to humankind and tie it somehow to human beings and the way they embody it, the way they demonstrate it, the life they live in context to that message they're preaching should cause us to seek God with fear and trembling and say, God, make me a faithful witness. And, and all of the different aspects, the manifold wisdom of God embodied in that message, how can that be lived out in my own life and in the church so that because my life has credibility, the gospel has credibility. The NLT, I, I really like the NLT on the translation here, 2 Corinthians 6. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We're true. We're genuine. You know, uh, I, in, uh, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2, one of the positive things that Jesus tells the church in Ephesus is, you had false apostles that came into your midst and you tested them and found them. You discovered them to be false. And you're like, well, how did they do that? What were the things they observed in the life of the messenger to where they could say, no, this person is a fraud, is not a faithful representative of the gospel, and therefore, they can't influence us. We're not going to let that leaven into our midst because we want to be a faithful witness that embodies the gospel. These, I mean, the, this, this issue of discernment, this all assumes discernment, right? The ability to say, no, like, this is the gospel. This is the kind of life that the gospel calls people to. And being able to discriminate that so that we can make sure that we as a body are a faithful witness as well, First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Thessalonians one and two. This is such a powerful, powerful passage. And if we don't, we may not even get past this passage, that's okay. But I love this passage because it brings these themes together: the theme of motives, example, some practical examples of what our lives actually looked like how we conducted ourselves among you. Let's look at this passage together. You know what kind of men we showed ourselves to be. Uh, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers constantly, remembering your, remembering your deeds prompted by faith, your hard work motivated by love, and your perseverance produced by hope in our Lord Jesus the Messiah before our God and Father. Being certain, brothers loved by God, about his choice of you, because our gospel came to you not merely with fine-sounding talk, but indeed with acts of power and with the Holy Spirit and with complete conviction of its truth. Just as you know for certain 
what kind of men we showed ourselves to be while we were with you in order to help and serve you. So you got God himself giving testimony to his gospel. It comes with power. It comes with conviction. It comes with the Holy Spirit. It's not just because he had great oratorical ability and skills. No, God himself confirms his message. And as we're going to see in a little bit, that this, this power probably includes miracles, but the power isn't limited to the miracles in the sense of outward demonstrations like healings and things like that. But we're also going to be looking at the power and the conviction of its truth that comes when Paul, by the power of God, not by the strength of man, not by the strength of the flesh, dares to preach that gospel despite opposition and continues to do so and get back up after he's stoned and keep doing the stuff after he's received the 40 minus 1, right? What human being can do that? None. I mean, nobody can do that in their own strength, and that's the point. No human being can believe this message and produce that kind of life in their own strength and power. But God can. God can show himself strong in, in our weakness and so Paul's saying, like, you saw what God did even through my sufferings, that no human being can do that. And so it, all of these things are bringing conviction of the truth of the gospel, God's confirmation with power, the life behind it. And he's just, he says, you know, you watched. You watched what kind of men we showed ourselves to be while we were with you in order to help and serve you. That these things that we did built a case and you had to decide a verdict. And part of that case that was being made by God was through the way we conducted ourselves. And you know it. You know the evidence that our lives placed before you. Verse 6. And as for yourselves, you followed our example and that of the Lord himself. Because when you accepted the message, you did so despite great trial and suffering with the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Look, at this is so powerful. Jesus sets the pattern. Obeying the Father, no matter what, in faith that his Father would vindicate him on the third day in resurrected glory. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. And with joy, knowing that what awaited him on the other side, that Paul is, is following that example. For the joy set before him, sharing in the Messiah's sufferings as a faithful witness in faith that just as Messiah was raised as the first fruit, so too I will share in the harvest of the resurrection when the Messiah returns. And now Paul is saying, you followed our example. Because even though you came under great trial and suffering, and if you want to look at some of the specific trials and difficulties and afflictions that the Thessalonians faced, it's in the book of Acts. You can get some historical concrete picture of that uh, from the book of Acts. But despite those trials, you had joy and you endured and you, you, you stayed faithful to the Lord in faith that you too would be included in that inheritance on that day. And so, you know, my, with my kids, we're always talking about the importance of setting a good example for one another. I mean, you, if you have children, you realize, wow, how important an example is. 
my example is being passed on to them. And I tell you, the pain of a parent when you see your kids do things that you do, and, you, and then you, have, you know, okay, let's let's talk about this, and you have to work through all these things, you know, and you know, but and then you see it replicated in siblings, and you see, oh my goodness, but also the positive example. And we've been trying to ask the Lord for grace to really affirm our our, our kids for the positive examples. Emily did that the other day. She she noticed that Asaph, he's our two-year-old, said, you know, he, he just, after a meal, he said, thank you. He just said, thank you. And, and, and just Emily was like, you know what, girls? I really need to affirm you because, you know, sometimes we're, 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 we're trying to encourage all of us to not just pass on a bad example. But look, you passed on a good example to your brother. We know the power of example. And so this principle that we're talking about is actually more, it's a part of our, we know the truth and the power of it. And so the same applies in context of the gospel. Now look at this. And as a result, you became an example, verse 7, to all the believers in the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, from you, the message about the Lord has echoed forth not only throughout Macedonia and Achaia. No, the news about your faith in God has spread everywhere, so much so that we don't even have to tell people about it. I mean, picture this. The Roman Empire, you've got this fledgling Christian movement that's coming under persecution and opposition. And... You're in Philippi, and you hear the testimony. Here's what the Thessalonians went through, and they stayed faithful to Jesus. And it stirs them to stay faithful to Jesus. And news is spreading. People are traveling around and sharing with these different churches. Paul, you know, Paul is pretty conscious about trying to use the example of one flock to encourage the other. He's pretty intentional about that. Look what these guys did. And kind of a little bit of a holy, like, oh, yeah. Why don't you guys do that? <laughs> you know, and, and using the godly example of different churches to spur one another on in that. They, in verse 9, they them, indeed, they themselves are telling others about the fruitful results of our visit to you and how you turn to God from idols so that you could serve the God who is living and true and wait expectantly for his son to come down from the heavens whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So here, the second coming waiting for that, enduring the, 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 the afflictions in hope that all things will be made right at his coming. Here it's central uh, from the very outset of what Paul is telling the Thessalonians. Then chapter 2, verse 1, like those believers elsewhere, you know, uh, excuse me, like, like those believers elsewhere, you yourselves know that our visit to you was not brothers without result. No, just the opposite. Despite the fact that we had previously suffered and been treated shamefully, as you are aware, in Philippi, we still boldly dared with the help of our God to declare the gospel of God to you in the face of fierce opposition. Now, notice as we move to verse 3, he's going to make a connection between, uh, uh, he's going to make a connection related to motives and daring to declare the gospel despite opposition. And we're going to notice that, that what we do 
in context to the difficulties we experience in this age is one of the main things that God uses to show the purity of the motives of his messengers and his people. Verse 3, the appeal we make, you see, you see, for this appeal that we make, this gospel of God that we boldly declared with his help in Philippi, despite suffering, that appeal, that gospel we present, it doesn't spring from deluded ideas. We're not just making this up. We're not just creating, we're not willing to die for just a mythological story. (laughs) You know, we don't have anything to gain from that. We're not just going to lay down our lives from some make-believe story we're making up. It didn't spring from filthy motives. We're not, our motives aren't corrupt. They're not impure. We're not doing it for greed. We're not doing it for other wicked things. It's not coming from an intent to deceive. Verse 4, on the contrary, just as we have been examined and approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Let that sink in just a little bit. Entrusted with the gospel. There's so much talk about the gospel. But what does it mean for God to entrust us with the gospel? The responsibility that that God entrusts somebody with the weighty task of faithfully representing the message so that God's knowledge is adequately represented in the situation. That's very weighty. And we declare it as people who've been examined and approved by God. And we do it not to please mere men, but God, who continually examines our thoughts and motives. God is looking at our hearts. He's examining our motives. And I don't know exactly how it works, if, it's, if there's different degrees of stewardship. But God is continually examining our hearts and motives. And he's saying, I long for a people that will embody this message to their friends and families and neighbors, to the world before it is too late, who will embody my mercy, who will lay down their lives. And people are provoked and say, why? And you can say, well, let me tell you a story about a man from Nazareth and what what he's done to save me. Verse 5, yes, we never use. Now, he's going to, so here we go. Here's some practical examples. God examines their thoughts and motives. They're not trying to please mere men. They're trying to please God. If they were trying to please mere men, they would have just stopped. (laughs) I mean, you know, they had nothing to gain in this age. By what they were, they were just constantly being, being, being persecuted and slandered. Not to please mere men, but God who continually examines our thoughts and motives. Verse 5. Yes, we never use, as you know, flattering talk. We weren't trying to appeal to your ego, in the sense. We're not just trying to flatter you. We're, we're, we're presenting you with the gospel, with truth, with sincerity. We're not using flattering talk. We're not trying to use some greedy scheme to get your money. 
Let's say that again. We're not trying to use some scheme to get your money. And that was a common part of their experience. We talked about the Corinthians, these false apostles that were pushing and shoving and trying to impress the people. Corinth was a wealthy city, right? I just find it so striking. You know, Paul did receive support at times, but he goes into this wealthy city where these false apostles are being drawn for the money. He goes in and says, okay, I'm not going to take money from you, but I'll receive it from the Macedonians who are barely scraping by. I'm just like the wisdom of wisdom of this age is just confronted by things like that and Paul's like I'm not trying to I'm not trying to please you Corinthians I'm trying to save you I'm trying to win you away from the foolishness of this age I want to confront your conscience so that you can be able to say wait a minute these guys are like wolves in sheep's clothing and if we follow and emulate their example it goes to a very bad place Even Satan masquerades as a servant of light. I don't want to share in Satan's destiny. And so his life is a a warning in that way. Let's keep growing. We weren't using greed to get your money. God himself is our witness. Nor did we seek honor, again, from mere men, not for you or for anyone else. Verse 7, although we could have insisted, since we are apostles of the Messiah... And that's being emphasized there in the text. That's an honorable thing, right? For the Messiah to commission him and entrust this task to him as an authorized representative. That, that, I mean, in the age to come, we'll see how honorable that really was. I mean, from the way Paul's battered body looked, you wouldn't necessarily think that was very honorable. But from the Lord's perspective. And they could have insisted on their own importance. Instead, we humbled ourselves while we were with you, like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children, having such great affection for you. We gladly chose to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives too, because you have become so dear to us. Indeed, surely you remember, brothers, how hard we worked and toiled, working night and day and day and night, so that we would not impose a financial strain on any of you. That's how we proclaimed the gospel of God to you. And here again, we see the Apostle Paul drawing attention not only to the what, but to the how that gives credibility to the what. The how that shows that the what is being proclaimed in sincerity and truth and not out of the yeast of malice and deception. And it's very important, a faithful, credible witness. Because Paul knew with sobriety that, that this ministry which, with which I have been entrusted, that if I do things to put stumbling blocks before others that discredit that ministry, because God has bound the gospel to the lives of his people, the lives of his servants and his messengers, that it puts the gospel at risk if this ministry is at risk sober, weighty. That's how we proclaim the gospel of God to you. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. I mean, you watched, you saw, you looked, you looked at our lives and God was too. Notice how 
he's con- just this constant awareness of what's God thinking about what I'm doing. See, and I'm like, God is my witness. God is, you know, he's constantly appealing to the fact that God is on his throne watching him. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we admonish people as as ambassadors, he says elsewhere. You know how holy, how righteous, and how blameless our conduct was toward you who believe. As you know, we treated each one of you as a father would his own children, continually exhorting you and encouraging you and warning you to live your lives in a way that agrees with the holy character of God who summons you to his own kingdom and glory. Let's go to letter B. We show that we are true ministers. So we're going back to the the verse that we started with earlier. But we're going to give it a little more context now. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. I don't want to put a stumbling block before anyone because I don't want my ministry to be discredited. I don't want my ministry to be discredited because I don't want the message to be discredited. The message that results in salvation for human beings. I mean, what other message is, what, what is more important than for a human being to know how their sins can be forgiven, how the wrath of God can be removed from them, how they can come up from the grave and not die and inherit an eternal kingdom. There's nothing else really that matters if you think about it. And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And so, let's keep, I'll, I'll, I'll jump back there. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so he's made us, he's entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. God, the Father, longing for human beings from every nation, tribe and tongue to repent. God, the Father of Israel, longing for his firstborn son to come home is extending a message of reconciliation through the cross, through the testimony of his people. And it's been entrusted to us. And if we put stumbling blocks before others, if we living our lives in a way that puts our motives in question, then that message of reconciliation is being compromised. How can you believe in the message of reconciliation? How can you believe that we actually need to live our lives in conformity with the holy character of God, to be holy as He is holy? When you're constantly coming into our midst, not for our sake, but to fill your pockets. When the things you're doing are self-serving. It puts the message of reconciliation at risk of not being taken seriously. And if it's not taken seriously, their consciences aren't being stirred to repent, to acknowledge that they're on the wrong path, that they need to get right with God and be reconciled to God through the means that he's made available to do that. 
Let's keep reading. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Going, skipping ahead to verse, chapter 6, verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So look at the things that are at stake. The message of reconciliation. A sincere appeal from God through his people. Be reconciled to God. Don't receive God's grace in vain. The day of salvation, the time of life. These are all these things that are these themes that are that are embodied and being proclaimed through Paul's ministry. And then he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path because we don't want any of those things to be compromised. Is this making sense? And now he's going to talk about what this actually, some of these things, we saw this in 1 Thessalonians 1, but uh, commending himself as a true servant. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Verse 4, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. The NLT, we show that we are true ministers. <clears throat> we commend ourselves, we commend ourselves, and in so doing, we commend the authenticity of our ministry, and in doing that, we commend the authenticity of the message. In, through great endurance in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots. We're faithful to him. We continue to get back up. We, the world says you have every reason to turn your back on this God. And yet we say, no, how could I turn my back on him when he died for me to pluck me from the lake of fire? I'm with him because he's promised that if I stick with him by his power, not by the strength of the flesh, but by his power, then I will receive this inheritance that is coming. I'm sticking with him. So I'm commend, he's commending the gospel through purity, sleepless nights, hunger. Why do you go without food? Why do you endure these sleepless nights? Why do you work hard with your own hands, sweating in toil, instead of, instead of, instead of taking it easy and just mooching off the people? Verse 6, impurity understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and honor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters. Oh. Genuine yet regarded as imposters. Jesus. Genuine but being crucified as an imposter. This hurts. It hurts when you're sincerely trying to love the Lord and people are saying bad things about you. Verse 9, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, scraping by so that others can be spared from eternal punishment. Having nothing and yet, yet possessing everything. Let us see. 
When we speak, it is with pure sincere motives. I'm seeing a theme here, Paul. 2 Corinthians 2. To God, however, be thanks. To the one who, like a general at the head of his victory procession, puts us on public display in the Messiah continually and discloses through us everywhere the very fragrance of the knowledge of him. What we are is a fragrant aroma offered to God by the Messiah, living sacrifices in the presence of those heading toward salvation and in the presence of those heading toward utter ruin. Verse 16, though in the eyes of the latter we are more like the stench of death leading to greater death. In the eyes of the former we are the sweet smell of life leading to greater life. For those who have tasted, for those who look at the sufferings we endure and despise it, who look at our lives and say, I don't want that. If there's anything I don't want, I don't want that. We're the stench of death. But for fellow sinners who were in utter despair and had no hope in this world, and God somehow reached out to them as demonstrated by the love reenacted and put on display through those that were sent to them. Oh my goodness, there's hope for me. You mean those cross, those stripes that I'm seeing displayed in your body are reflective of what God himself is like? Yeah, and here's how I know. Look what, the, look what Jesus himself did on the cross for our salvation. To them, it's like the sweet smell of life leading to greater life. And every time the Apollo, another story comes in about Paul's life. Oh, did you hear what he went through? And he stayed faithful. And so it results in greater life working on the inside. And ultimately, it will bubble up and spring up into eternal life on, the, on that day and the age to come. To some, were the sweet smell of life. And as for such a calling, whose lives are truly up to standard? The ISV, whose, whose lives are qualified? Who is qualified? Who's adequate? The Greek here, this is from the, the Bible Sense lexicon, Meeting adequate standards for a purpose. Well, what's the purpose? What is the purpose for the gospel to be faithfully proclaimed? For the gospel to be faithfully proclaimed and displayed for the salvation of both Jew and Gentile? Whose lives are such by the power of God, by the mercy of God? We can't produce this in our lives. The Lord has to produce this. But are our lives such that the fragrance of God, that the knowledge of God is sufficiently displayed and demonstrated, that the fragrance of God is diffused such that if somebody rejects us, they're rejecting Him. That even if they don't accept the message, they've been given a faithful witness. And those that do accept have been also given a faithful witness, resulting in salvation. Whose lives? And then he goes back to the money thing. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, Lord. Oh. Whose lives are up to standard? Who lives are, who, who's adequate? Who's qualified? Verse 17, we are not like the many who use tricks and deceit to make money off of the word of God, you see. Other translations, hucksters who peddle the word of God for profit. That's the Net Bible. ISV, commercializing God's word. 
handling God's message as if it were cheap merchandise. How's that one? <laughs> the homeman market God's message for profit. I'm not going to say anything else about that. You, know, guys, you guys can make your own applications in your own minds based on the things that are happening in our culture and society. No. When we speak as evidenced by the way we've commended ourselves to trials, hardships, purity, our motives, weapons in the right hand, weapons in the left hand. When we're struck down, we get back up. When we're hard-pressed, we're not destroyed. We continue to press on. We really believe this message. God has really saved us, though we don't deserve it. We're staying faithful to Him to the end. We, when we speak, as you know, we appealed to your conscience. It was with pure and sincere motives as people sent from God and accountable to God that we do so on behalf of the Messiah himself. The Messiah himself does not present an insincere message and an insincere life. Letter D, I hope it is clear to your consciences. Verse 11, we present our appeal, 2 Corinthians 5, 11, we present our appeal, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we present it to mankind. We present it to barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, sophisticated, uneducated alike. We present the appeal of God. Be reconciled to God. Look what he's willing to do so that you could be reconciled to him. And our lives, by his mercy, we pray, it's been made real to you. Take it seriously. Nothing else really matters. The truth of our lives is already clear and obvious to God himself. First Thessalonians 1, 2, going back there, who continu continually examines our thoughts and motives. And I hope it is already clear and obvious, too, to your consciences. I, the, I love the New Century version here. Read this with me. God knows what we really are, and I hope that in your hearts you know, too. Letter E. Ministers of a new covenant, not of a law code, but of the Spirit. Second Corinthians two, three, one through six. You know, Paul, you feel his pain when you read First and Second Corinthians. You feel the pain of he's poured out everything he has for these people, and they should be sticking up for him <laughs> as a true representative, but they're not. They're going after these imposters, and. He's trying to be as humble as possible, but he has to defend himself somehow for their sake, right? You drove me, I read it, 2 Corinthians 11, you drove me to this. I didn't want to do this. You made me do it, you know? It's just like, so anyway, 2 Corinthians 3. Is it beginning to sound as if we are again trying to establish our own credibility? Surely we don't need, do we? Like some, letters from others that prove our credibility to you or letters from you that prove it to others. These were letters of, rec letters of recommendation in the ancient world. You know, when somebody showed up, they needed a letter from somebody saying, this guy is credible, right? That's the way it worked. Paul's saying, we, guys, we were with you. You saw our lives. Do we have to have Peter and James and all these guys, like, write a letter saying that we're legitimate representatives? You saw our lives. In fact, you yourselves are our letter. Like, look what's happening among you. The Spirit of God is work among you. Yeah, there needs to be some tweaking. We need to 
we need to take the love chapter and put it in between 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and the gifts of the Spirit. We've got to refine this thing, people. But look, you have the Spirit in your midst. All of these things that he's talking about uh, in First and Second Corinthians, that the Lord is at work in their midst. There needs to be some discipline, some serious discipline and some serious adjustment. But you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, continually known and read by all. Verse 3, it isn't difficult to see that you are a letter produced by the Messiah, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence, yes, that we have through the Messiah in the presence of God. I want to make it clear, though, that it certainly isn't because of our own strength and ability that we are able to do all that we do, as if to consider the results of our work as having their source in us. No, our ability comes from God, who has enabled us as ministers of a new covenant, not of a law code written out on scrolls, but of the Spirit. The written code condemns to death, you see, whereas the Spirit gives new life. And so Paul's saying, I am a minister of this new covenant, and as... maybe some construction going on I'm a minister of this new covenant and when you repented and you believed God poured out his spirit into your hearts as a deposit circumcising the heart washing cleansing renewing the gospel here's what happened there was a man named Jesus he came He died. He took our sins upon him, died in our place, on our behalf, on the cross, removed God's wrath, rose again on the third day, ascended to the Father's right hand, is coming again. And those who repent and believe, he puts the Spirit in them to wash them and sanctify them in preparation for that day. And so this gospel, this ministry of the Spirit written on the heart, on the inside, transforming motives, transforming desires, transforming our insincere inner life into a pure and authentic and genuine life in God. So at the center of this gospel is the power of God to change a human being on the inside and write the law on the heart. And so... If we are calling people to be transformed by the power of the Spirit on the inside as a huge, as a, as a vital element of this gospel, then we need to demonstrate that that Spirit has actually done a work in us. See what I'm saying? If we're ministers of this new covenant, of this work of the Spirit, then we, it's vital that we demonstrate through these various means, the purity of motive that the Spirit produces and that when you receive the Spirit, He's going to work and do all that He can. And sometimes it can get really intense to cleanse you, work on the inside, so that you too can be a faithful representative entrusted with the gospel. So we're going to do something miraculous. I'm going to end on time. At least by that clock. This is weighty. 
this is weighty, that we let the Spirit cleanse our motives, prepare us, and that it, we allow God to let it, we allowed God to demonstrate it to others in context to the difficulties we, we go through, the way we respond, in light of the hope that we have. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for your mercy towards us. And I pray in the name of Jesus that, that your spirit would do this very thing in our hearts in this conference, Lord. That you would write your law on our hearts and on our minds. That, Lord, you would renew us in the inner man. That you would purify our motives. Father, that, that you would give us grace to demonstrate the faithfulness that you yourself showed on the cross, that you would give us power, Lord, to be a faithful representation of the gospel and to put no obstacles and stumbling blocks before people in this area in Jesus' name.